0: Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess.
1: And I'm John.
0: And today, we're finally doing it. We're going to the final frontier, into the world of astrobiology, or as how we like to say it, astro-microbiology, because you know everything needs to have a micro-moment. But before we get too far into that, I just want to say that we do have a little bit of some crowdsourcing we want to do, and we want to hear from you. So we would very much, so much, we would love it if you would send us in your microbe moments. And if you don't know what a microbe moment is, just ask yourself, why do you listen to this podcast? Why do you love microbes? How did you get into it? Why is microbes important to your life? What's your favorite microbe food? We want to know. You can send us an audio file or you can send us an email and send it to microbials at gmail.com. We will either put the direct audio file into a podcast or we'll read it out loud. You can use your name. You can fake name. We do whatever you'd like, but we want to know what your microbe moment is. So please, 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 please send that in to us. It would make our day and we hope it will make your day too to be on a podcast. So, once again, go ahead and send those to microbiagales at gmail.com. That's M I C R O B I G A L S at gmail.com. All right, Johnny, you ready to talk about space?
1: Yeah, let's talk about astro microbiology.
0: Cool, cool, cool. So, do you have a definition of astro microbiology for people?
1: It's kind of new, so I don't know how solid the definition is, but it's. Really looking at the intersection of microbiology, physics, astronomy, and geology. In a short sense, it's looking for microbes in outer space or or possibly on other planets.
0: Yeah, astro microbiology and astrobiology are really close in their definitions. So astrobiology has been around for as long as people have looked up into the great big sky, into those stars, and asked, are we alone in the universe? This is really the fundamental question that guides astro microbiology. And while we as humans have probably been doing this for a long time, we can trace this all the way back to 460 to 370 BC with Democritus, who was a Greek philosopher and predecessor of Aristotle.
1: That really surprised me. It's that far back that thinking of life outside this planet or at least in the sky was occurring.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, we get a lot of astronomy, a lot of astrology, even from our Greek philosophers. So, Democritus was the first person that we know of to say life probably does exist out there on other planets. But he also made a notice that it doesn't exist on all planets. Aristotle, who would have been his uh, younger, took a slightly different approach when he said, um, a more human-centric approach, really. When he looked at the universe and said, Earth is the only place that life exists, and humans are at the top of that life. And then you get into, you know, who's spinning around who, the Earth, the sun, the moon, and everyone's like, yeah, everything spins, or we, we, everything spins around us, which, you know, obviously was not super true.
1: Yeah, it started with the Earth is the center of everything, and eventually it was the sun is the center of everything, and we rotate around the sun, and then slowly built out from there.
0: Yeah, and I, I believe that it's Copernicus and Galileo. Which Copernicus always reminds me of a dog. A dog. A dog. Copernicus. Back to the Future.
1: Oh, that Brown's
0: dog was Copernicus. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I believe it was Einstein in the eighties. Copernicus in the fifties. I may have those two. Oh,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Einstein was the older one, I believe. Yeah, or the one in the eighties. The
0: one in the eighties. Oh, I love Back to the Future. It's so good. Anyways, so you want to talk a little bit about how we believe life on Earth occurred here today now.
1: Hmm. How did life begin? I'm sorry. I'm going back into my schooling here. What's taught us in at least earlier school is we came from this primordial goo that life came out of it. But that's a very oversimplification of it, right?
0: Definitely.
1: I believe life started as... Nucleic acids, more specifically RNA, they thought.
0: Sure. I mean, that's a theory that it could be RNA or it could be DNA, but we want to go even further back. I want you to close your eyes and imagine the world 4 billion years ago. Volcanoes are violently erupting, spewing gases and solids throughout the land. It was inhospitable as we know it today. Even for our extremophile friends that we have today, they probably would not survive a change began to occur some 4 billion years ago. From these volcanoes and the turmoil arose an atmosphere. Hydrogen sulfide, methane, and carbon dioxide filled the air. The earth began to cool, and the oceans began to form. And it is here our story truly begins. This is where the origin of life starts. And like all of our stories, the origin of life is a microbial story. Our early ancestors lived in much a different environment than we do now, and the microbial ancestors, or the, the ancestors to the microbes that we know today lived very differently than they do now as well.:
1: Right. There was no oxygen on Earth first and foremost, right?:
0: Exactly. Some 3.8 to 4.3 billion years ago is when we come across the first evidence of microbes. And in this environment, there was no oxygen. It was harsh environment for sure. And the microbes that arose had to metabolize chemicals from the Earth's surface, a process known as chemosynthesis. Similar to photosynthesis, where you take from the sunlight and create energy, chemosynthesis takes from chemicals and creates energy. However, it is 3.5 billion-year-old stromatolites found in Australia and Greenland that gives us the definitive evidence of our photosynthetic microbial ancestors known as cyanobacteria.
1: Are those those circular blobs that they find in the ocean.
0: Yeah, well, these ones are actually on rocks. They're these stromatolites that are really old. They're in Australia. They have all these wavy lines on them. They look really cool. One day I want to see them. Put it on the bucket list. But they believe these rock forms used to be living biomass, and this is what started to produce a lot of the oxygen. For the next few billion years or so, so we're 3.5 billion years ago, these ancestral cyanobacteria are creating oxygen on the earth. And for the next few billion years, the cyanobacteria would slowly make oxygen as a byproduct based on their chemical consumption. And because they were not used to this oxygen, eventually the concentration would rise to the point where it would kill most of them off. And it was like a mass genocide that they kind of created.
1: There's actually evidence out there, right? I think it's Ireland. There's these rocks that have bands of like oxidized iron.
0: Yeah, so that, that kind of comes in a little bit later, the, um, about 2.7 million years ago. We get these oxygenated iron bands that short of so that oxygen is rising and depleting. And once the oxygen dissipates and the concentrations go down low enough, these cyanobacteria can then start coming alive again, feeding off the chemicals of the rocks that they're on, and then producing the oxygen until eventually... It dies off again. And in these banded iron formations, we see this great oxidation event where we would see bits of red come with bits of black or bands of black.
1: That would be the oxidized iron, right?
0: Exactly. And for a very, very long time, these microbes were the sole residents of the whole land. Now, we kind of skipped over the primordial soup, if you will. Um, There's lots of different theories on exactly how these single-cell organisms came to be, including, what is it called, the panspermia theory, where it actually comes from a a meteorite?
1: Right. They found a, um, a rock from Mars in the Antarctic, and they thought that they found, like, fossilized bacteria Which some scientists thought proved that the theory of panspermia, but you know we have microbes on Earth, so there's no real good way to tell if it comes from another planet or if it was already here.
0: Yeah, and I mean origins would not are terribly hard to figure out. I mean that's one of the oldest jokes ever, right? Right. Chicken or the egg? Egg or chicken? Mm, No one knows. So eventually we started to have this oxygen start to build up in the earth, right? And different microbes were able to come about. While the anaerobes were still able to scurry to remote lands of the earth, seeking solitude in the few places that still resembled the comfort of home, like the extreme heat of hydrothermal vents or the oxygen-free depths such as in the Black Sea of today. Others managed to adapt and thrive in the new oxygen-rich environment. New species with new capabilities continue to emerge, including a new type of microbe called eukaryotes. These cells were 10 to 100 times bigger than previously seen and started to organize their DNA into packages called a nucleus. And if this sounds kind of familiar, then you're thinking of your biology class. Eukaryotes are very much what we are, and this nucleus is exactly what every single one of your cells has to hold its DNA.
1: And they're a lot more complicated than bacteria. They have these structures inside called organelles because they're a lot bigger, so they need something else so they can still go through those life processes, right?
0: Correct, yeah. And two of these organelles are actually have a microbial origin.
1: The one I know most is mitochondria, and it still has its own distinct DNA, if I remember correctly.
0: Exactly. And mitochondria is actually interesting. I always think it's interesting that... While you, as an individual, are a mixture of both your mommy and your daddy uh, and their unique genomes, your mitochondria is all your ma.
1: That is interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. I always thought that was kind of a cool fact. And then the other one is specific to plants. We have chloroplast, which was engulfed by a species at one point. Um, and chloroplast now resides in plants and conducts a lot of the photosynthesis while the mitochondria, which we talked about before, provides energy to many of the multicellular organisms. So we're going to zoom ahead a little bit into the Cambrian explosion and go through the next you know, couple hundred million years of history rather quickly because now we're getting into points that don't have super a lot of relevance to astrobiology and we want to get back to the point. But basically, we had the Cambrian explosion 470 million years ago. Plants moved from the sea to land, followed by animals, and almost 300 million years ago is when we get our animals. Fifty million years ago, mammals called a bat learned to fly. Two million years ago, the first humans emerged. So you see, my friends, no matter how you slice and dice the history, microbes are at the heart of it. The beginning of every story, there is a micro moment. All right, but why are we talking about this?
1: To give us a base of what we're looking for for astro microbiology, right?
0: Exactly. If we're talking about astro microbiology or astrobiology, one of the fundamental questions is: Are we alone? in the universe, we have to understand what is life. How do we define life? What do we need to look for in order to say whether or not life exists elsewhere? And how? what is the limits of reality that we know ourselves on Earth? And can we go to those limits of reality to help us understand what might be out there? So life on Earth, we talked a little bit about the history. Let's talk a little bit about the essential qualities of life on Earth We talked about cells, there can be unicellular, there can be multicellular, which is most humans, unicellular is most bacteria. Most life that we know is made up of dioxyribonucleic acid or DNA. A lot of people call this the blueprint of life. However, there's also RNA. And then there's the central dogma, which basically says your DNA is transcribed into RNA and then translated into proteins. The other fundamental quality of life, as we know it, is very much a hereditary quality. Life makes new life, right? So in the case of bacteria, they make exact copies of each other. They create daughter cells from parent cells. In the case of eukaryotes, we have a process known as sex, which integrates two different gene pools together into a new organism. But um, life is never exactly the same as the previous generation. There are mutations, um, there are adaptations, there's evolution, right? And this is kind of how we continue to change as a society. And this is not just humans and monkeys and bats, but microbes are doing this too on a much faster scale than perhaps you and I are evolving. And then just as a side note, because I feel like this is always something that to note that people don't always understand or sometimes just forget because we love the idea of becoming superhumans. Many will go without anyone ever noticing anything. These mutations will occur, but it doesn't actually change anything or it changes something, but the downstream effects will never really surface. And then the final thing that I think makes life occur is carbon. Now, if you remember anything about chemistry, it's probably carbon, because carbon is a little bit of a socialite. Carbon loves to be connected with tons of other elements, and nearly all life needs carbon. That's why we're called carbon life forms. But why carbon? Why is it carbon is the most essential? There's hundreds of elements out there, and only 24 of these hundreds of elements found on Earth are actually necessary s- to sustain life. There are also over 500 amino acids, which I didn't know about. Really? Amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Right. And generally, in our classes of chemistry, biology, biochemistry, whatever it is that you learn this in, you're usually thinking more in the 20s.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I never n- realized that number was so high.
0: Yeah. I mean, just to tell you how uncomplicated we are, everything, every form of life when we're talking about DNA or RNA, it's four letters. I mean, there's some things out there that might use other letters, but that's it. Everything that you see, everything that you do, four letters. And these four letters turn into these 22 bricks of proteins and this sustains and creates everything on earth.
1: Mind-blowing.
0: Yes. Oh, but I forgot one more thing that's essential to life. Can you guess what it is? Water. Yep, yep, yep. We are just a giant pool of water. I mean, most of it we can't use because it's a little bit salty, but still water. Bags of water. So that's a little bit about Earth. Should we talk a little bit about space? Sure. All right. So let's, let's talk about space. You have the whole universe. It was a hot, dense state. Then nearly 14 billion years ago, expansion started. And it all started with a bang. (laughs) I was thinking big bang. (laughs) This is the beginning of, uh, yeah. All right. So there were stars over natural elements in the periodic table. We have this giant galaxy. It's all floating away from me. It's starting to form gravity. And we get pulled into these galaxies. In particular, our galaxy is called the Milky Way. It's 100,000 light year large spiral. But for most of us, it's just a little cloudy dust in the sky. And that's if you don't live in a city where you can actually see the sky. And then, of course, there is a giant ball of gas that's a hundred times the diameter of the Earth. We call the sun. Really breaking ground here, huh, Copernicus? For sure, for sure. Then we get a collision, the storm of rock embryos and the planetary pinball machine that eventually grows into a mass like a snowball rolling down into a hill until it eventually the mass grows enough to form the own gravitational pull and becomes a planet's. And these planets will eventually form Earth. Okay, so that's all well and good, and massive, and quite incomprehensible—the size of the galaxy, the size of the Earth, the size of the Sun. Um, we want to move past this, move past the beginning of Earth, and talk more specifically into astrobiology. So, take it away, John. Tell us a little bit more about astrobiology.
1: Well, like I said, it was—it's looking for life in outer space and other planets, and there are 4,000 planets in our galaxy. There's bound to be something out there, right?
0: I mean, that's what they say, but according to Josh, he says, if there was, wouldn't we already know it?
1: Well, there's, what, a theory that it's so violent that nothing can reach us, that the outer space is so violent with small meteorites and something that the journey would be so dangerous, but I don't, I'm don't. i not sure about that.
0: But again, that's based on our current technologies. Right. And if we're, I think that if something else is out there, it's probably has higher, like we can't be the most advanced society of the 4,000 planets out there.
1: No. And in turn, we can't be the least evolved.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess that's just because we're average people and we think Earth is pretty average too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think, what have we tried to find life on? Pretty much Mars at this point in time, because it's the only other planet that we've gotten to.
0: And Venus, and the moon, right? Yeah, we- We'll take samples from the moon and analyze it.
1: Yeah, and then there was initial realization, or initial thought that, oh my God, we're finding microbes on these moon rocks we brought back, but then they looked back at the videos and there was heavy contamination from the scientists, so that was thrown out the window. mm
0: mm-hmm. Not all scientists are microbiologists, that's for sure. Microbiologists are a very special breed.
1: Right. And in Venus, we, I, we've we never gotten to the surface, but there's a theory that there's this hospitable zone in the atmosphere somewhere that could potentially be the right temperature and have the right organic compounds for life to live
0: Mm. So that's above the surface of the planet?
1: Yes, somewhere in the atmosphere.
0: Oh, I didn't hear that. Because
1: Venus has sulfuric rain, I believe, and very high temperatures. Right. So there's this little pocket, if a microbe is extreme enough, could potentially live there. But this is very limiting, right? Because there's only two spots that we can really um, study right now. One of them, we have rovers on, so we can directly test it. So I think a lot of...
0: But we have rovers on Mars or Venus?
1: Uh, Mars, sorry. Oh, okay, okay. So I think a lot of this has to delve in, not speculation per se, but using models to try to understand what life would be like on other planets. Mm-hmm. And we know that a lot of planets can be relatively inhospitable to say humans or other multicellular organisms, right?
0: Yeah, definitely wouldn't survive on Mars without a spacesuit. Probably wouldn't survive on Mars with a spacesuit.
1: Mm, no, you can survive on a, with a spacesuit. No, I'm think.
0: saying like other people can. I'm saying I couldn't.
1: Oh, okay.
0: I don't think they make a spacesuit that I can put a petticoat under. <laughs> no. Yeah, I couldn't survive on my dresses.
1: No, you wouldn't be able to wear dresses out there.
0: No, nope, not happening.
1: This week's episode of the Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Validate your workflow with Zymobiomics Gut Microbiome Standard, an accurately quantified microbial community mimicking the human gut microbiome. Zymo's complete microbiome solutions have optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. You can find out more by visiting our website, ZymoResearch.com. So, we do have extreme environments on Earth. So, we point our scopes there. We have... Very dry environments. We have very hot environments like volcanoes or or the thermal vents underneath the sea. We even have very cold environments.
0: Like New England. Even colder.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And some of these really cold environments even have lakes a kilometer or even like six kilometers down below the ice. And guess what? What? There are microbes living in these environments. Whoa.
0: Way cool. And we call these microbes extremophiles. Right. And they are quite literally defining our reality.
1: Right. So since they're living in such extreme environments, we're like, well, can we use this as a proxy Mm -hmm. to try to figure out what's living on other planets? Mm -hmm. Or if
0: other things could live on other planets.
1: Right. And so that's where a lot of research is going into is studying these microbes and even like shooting them in outer space Mm -hmm. to see what they're doing.
0: And so currently there are two microbes that I can think of. Maybe there are more, but there are two microbes I can think of that have actually survived extended periods of time in space.
1: Yes. That'll come in a second though.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. I'm jumping ahead. All right. All right. What you got?
1: So there are two. general kinds of, well, I shouldn't say, there are two broad categories of extremophiles.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, there's nothing general about an extremophile.
1: No, there are, well, there are, there's a class called generalists. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, I started And then it. specialist. These names refer to the ability of the microbe to survive either in one extreme condition, which would be a specialist or multiple. Well, that would be the generalist. It can survive over a broader uh, range. So we're using these microbes to try to say, are we alone? And how does life evolve? Um, By studying these extreme files, we can not only better understand how life evolved on our own planet, but how life could evolve on other planets. And not to mention, we can better define what is life.
0: Exactly.
1: So there are a couple ways extreme files can survive harsh environments. One is um, through their proteins. So normal organisms have neutral proteins. This means that they are neither acidic or basic. However, proteins from some extremophiles are very acidic, which helps the microbes stay hydrated and their proteins function. If you look at a very salty environment, for example, neutral proteins in the presence of too much salt can lose its function, but acidic ones still work.
0: Mm. And then we call these microbes that can survive in very high concentrations of salt halophiles, as in lovers of salt.
1: Right. Another way is by forming spores. Um, This is not necessarily exclusive to extremophiles, but...
0: Yeah, most fungi form spores.
1: No, but it is is a good adaptation overall.
0: Yeah, good protective shield.
1: Yeah, so what happens is... The microbe, for whatever reason, it its environment is not sustainable for its life. So what it does is it, it like dries out. It creates a special cocoon and hides in there until it gets a signal where it can thrive again. And a lot of microbes do this, even extremophiles. So if you're living in an area that is a desert and there is no water, and remember we said we, there needs to be water there, well, you just turn to a spore, you hide, you wait, until water comes, and then you sprout out again.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And always, whenever I think of spores, I think of that Pokemon. Do you remember what that Pokemon's called? It's gold. It's, like, probably called, that cocoon or something.
1: Oh, um
0: that I always think of because on the N64 there was Pokemon Stadium and they had this little game where things would fall on your head and you had to harden and form a little gold thing around you so that you wouldn't get hit and I was really good at that game and it reminds me of Extremophiles. Files. I
1: know exactly what you're talking about. Um, I think it's uh, There
0: are people like just yelling at the podcast right now. Yeah. This is the Pokemon! Oh my god. Uh, we, we are failing at the nerd flag right now.
1: Yeah. We're, we're not Pokemon nerds. Sorry about that. But
0: <laughs> Pokemon aside.
1: Yeah. And there's technically not a microorganism, I believe, but tardigrades.
0: I mean, tardigrades are microbes. So they're just not bacterial. They're,
1: they're multicellular microorganisms. Exactly. What they do is, in extreme environments, what they do is they'll force water out of their body. But they have these proteins that help protect their DNA, and their the rest of the organelles in their cells. And it's kind of like, I wanted to say like... Metapod. Metapod. There we go. We got the answer. It's kind of like antifreeze, if I remember correctly. Uh-huh. And then when they rehydrate, they're ready to go. So it's a little bit different than a spore former, but it helps protect them. Mm. They have these proteins that do it. And the last one I want to get into is perfect for microbes that live in outer space specifically because do you know what harsh uh, conditions are in outer space?
0: Oh, let's see. It's cold. Uh-huh. There is um uh, no gravity. There's a vacuum.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there is no water. And feel Like, I'm missing one,
1: huh? Yeah, the one I'm gonna pick
0: vacuum. It's cold, there's no oxygen. I mean, all this stuff is true. It's true. <laughs> what am I missing?
1: Radiation.
0: Oh, right, right, right. So,
1: the earth has a magnetic field which protects us from the solar radiation of the sun. However, in outer space, you have no said protection. So, there are microbes that can survive severe radiation environments. True dat. And the one I want to pick specifically is Deinococcus radiodurans. And it goes in the Guinness Book of World Records, which isn't the most scientifically accurate thing. But it's still cool. It's still cool.
0: I would rather be in the Guinness Book of World Records and get like a Nobel Prize or something. But uh, that's kind of how I'm (laughs) a weirdo.
1: Well, then you would be in the same book as Deinococcus radiodurans. But it's the most, the world's most radiation-resistant bacteria. It survives not only radiation, but drought, uh, lack of nutrients, and r- radiation thousands of times higher than a human. It was actually discovered by accident, too, where the period of where we're storing everything into cans.
0: Mm-hmm. The 50s? 40s?
1: 50s or 60s, I believe. They decide to bombard cans of meat with radiation.
0: Okay, see I can follow that logic.
1: But there was a can that's still spoiled.
0: Uh oh. Oh, so they were radiating it to sterilize it. Hey, so right. it wouldn't get people sick. Right. Our radiation gets people sick.
1: Yeah, well, we wouldn't do that nowadays. Okay. That's good. Um Gamma radiation we would, but that's different. Um, that's a completely different topic.
0: I know. We were like in the uh, medical museum the other day and there was like a UV light therapy thing. So you could just like blast yourself with UV light. And I was like, oh my God, that's so bad. (laughs) Don't do that.
1: Oh, there's plenty of bad things back in the day.
0: I know. It's fascinating.
1: But what dinococcus does, its secret is that it's really good at repairing damaged DNA. So it doesn't protect its DNA. I should step back a little bit. The bad thing about radiation is it damages our DNA. That's why we get sick and we die. It's our DNA is being like sheared by this thing. And we may not see the result of like in like immediately, but it does affect our cells. So I guess saying that this microbe is radiation resistant is not the most accurate thing. It is the be- one of the best at repairing its damaged DNA. Mm-hmm. And it stitches its DNA back together from DNA fragments and even has four copies of its genome.
0: Four copies of its genome? Yeah. Where? In the cell. What?
1: Yeah, it has four copies of its DNA. It's like this big redundant system it has. Huh. And it even has fewer genes involved with DNA repair than other bacteria. But... Those genes are really good at repairing it.
0: I guess so. Well, if you have four copies, I mean, you repair one when you use one. I wonder how it uses them all, or if it uses them all, if they're all just like backup, backup, backup. That I don't know. Huh. Interesting. I'll look into that.
1: And they're found everywhere on Earth as well. Everywhere. Everywhere. The equator. Yep.
0: Antarctica. Yep. New England. Probably. In coffins.
1: Mm, probably.
0: On spaceships yes in elon musk's car
1: no it's too too pretentious for them
0: (laughs) that makes sense
1: and i also want to talk about
0: wait wait should we go back for a second and talk about some of the different kinds of extremophiles that there are the different groupings sure so we talked about halophiles which are
1: uh they're salt resistant right
0: they're lovers of salt. They can survive in really high salt. We talked a little bit about microbes that like to survive in really hot temperatures, which are?
1: Thermophiles?
0: Yes. Um, so some examples of that are thermos aquaticus, which is Tac polymerase, where you get the polymerase for your um, PCRs. Comes from uh, Thermus aquaticus. We have Bacillus stereothermophile and we have Thermoplasma acidophilum, are all examples of thermophiles, and they can survive in temperatures up to seven degrees Celsius. Then we have the flip side of that. Do you know what those are called?
1: Mm, I can't remember.
0: So these will be psychrophiles. They like extremely cold temperatures that can be as low as 15 degrees Celsius or even lower than that, which is pretty cold. So this is uh, Chryseobacterium is one of the psychrophiles that we have. And then we didn't mention any halophiles, but some examples of halophiles include Halobacterium halobium and Hordia wernecki. And there's actually a lake in Australia. It's Lake Hillier on Middle Island that is bright pink. Like, seriously, it's like a bubblegum pink. Super cool if you go look up the photos. This is caused by an algae, Halobacterium, um, that really loves extremely salty water. And we're talking usually it's like magnitudes higher than the ocean salty. So, real salty.
1: Of course, we also have what other bacteria, other extremophiles that uh survive very acidic and very basic conditions.
0: These are called acidophiles. Do you know any example of those?
1: Not off the top of my head, now.
0: So there's Acidobacter acidii, uh and Helobacter pylori.
1: Oh, that makes sense because of uh, ulcers in the uh, stomach.
0: Yes. Yeah, so Helobacter pylori, which is a very interesting story. We're definitely going to do that. We need to do. Like a podcast on scientists, biologists, microbiologists who test stuff out on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That story is definitely going to happen. It's going to come. We're going to wrap back around a Helobacter pylori. Put that in your back pocket. Put a pin in and do whatever you do. But we're going to come back to it. Don't you forget. Because it's a super interesting story. It moves science in a direction. And it's something we're going to do. Talk about later. But right now we're talking about astro microbiology. So, yeah, those are kind of the major groups of extremophiles that we have in our world. So, once again, we have acidophiles, lovers of acids or really basic, halophires, lovers of salt. We have psychrophiles, lovers of extremely cold temperatures, definitely not myself. Thermophiles, lovers of extremely hot temperatures, also definitely not myself. I like it a very nice temperate temperature.
1: You like that thirty-seven degrees Celsius temperature?
0: Mm, I mean, my body is generally not at exactly thirty-seven; it's a little bit lower. Thirty
1: degrees Celsius. Yeah. Go with that.
0: Sure, sure, sure. All right. What else do you have to share with us for astro microbiology?
1: Um, I have some couple notes of what NASA has done with microbes in outer space. Go for it. So, just a quick note, which blew my mind, is the the temperature differences around an international space station. So the difference between temperature of the side that faces the sun and the side facing away from the sun can be as much as 500 degrees Fahrenheit.
0: What? Yep. That's so hot.
1: And so NASA has done many studies of microbes in outer space. We have tardigrades, which we've covered before, but like they've the
0: poster child of astro microbiology. Yeah, yep.
1: they've kept them outside the Inter- international space station for a period of time, brought them back to Earth, and I think like they started laying eggs. So they're like good to go.
0: I always like think of tardigrades like little carnival characters, like you know those the flea circuses, but like tardigrades, and they wear little helmets when they get shot into space, and it's like a little cannonball. <laughs> Yeah, that's
1: not, not exactly that, but oh. it's a better imagination. There is Bacillus plumidus, SAFR 032. Its spores can withstand UV radiation as well as hydrogen peroxide, but it will eventually die.
0: Do you know how long it survived in space for?
1: I, I do not know. They've even found bacteria multiply to higher numbers and are more resistant to antibiotics. When growing in outer space and on Earth. Not necessarily.
0: What? Why? In the vacuum
1: of outer space on the space station.
0: On the space station.
1: I don't know why.
0: They're better at resisting antibiotics.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't understand why.
0: Hmm. I mean, interesting study just, to look into.
1: Yeah, so I just, I saw that little tidbit. I'm like, huh, really? And again, they've also done studies with Diana Caucus And they created balls of bacteria of the Dianococcus and placed them outside the space station for three years.
0: Three yeah. years. It's a long research so study.
1: The outer cells died, but the bacteria inside the ball survived, showing that microbes can survive in space for periods of time.
0: Hmm. So they almost like sacrificed each other, formed a protective coat?
1: Yeah, so I think what happened is even though Dianococcus is really good at protecting itself the radiation or just the environment itself was too extreme for the outer cells. And then they died, but they kind of created like this protective layer. Huh. So, do you have anything else to talk about for astro microbiology?
0: I do not, sir. I gave you all my facts I know about astro microbiology right now.
1: Okay. So, we talked about using microbes on Earth to search for microbes on other planets, but that's not the only way that NASA is looking or. Scientists are looking in outer space to try to find microbes or hints of microbes.
0: How else are they looking?
1: If you look at the elements, not necessarily elements, but the compounds on other planets.
0: Uh huh. we gonna talk about carbon.
1: Well, if you look at if you look for carbon-based molecules on other planets or moons, that's one way. Another way is if you're finding water. We all know that living, at least mm-hmm. to our standards, living. Organisms need water, so looking for water is is another perfect thing. Right. And I think they also use wavelengths to try to detect these when they're looking at a planet. Hmm. But we are going to be interviewing some astrobiologists in the future, and maybe they can tell us a little bit more about this. For
0: sure, for sure. Hear from the actual researchers.
1: But I want to end this in saying where places in our solar system life could be. There's and Soletus, a moon around saturn which has been seen spewing water from geysers and is thought to have water under the frozen surface Ooh. of course there's mars we have mm-hmm. the ice caps and they think that there is subterranean ice or water
0: mm-hmm. and there's definitely mars attacks which is a very good movie that clearly documents Mars living on Mar- Mar- Martians exist.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny movie. Is it a very good movie? That's debatable.
0: It's a very accurate movie that clearly depicts sure. the reality of Martians. Okay. Yeah.
1: There is Titan, another moon around Saturn, that has lakes of ethane and methane and rains hydrocarbons. So that is carbon again.
0: Rains hydrocarbon. Yes.
1: And it has lakes of ethane and methane, which explode on Earth. They're very, you know, they're gas. Mm. They're going to explode. But there, it's a, it's cold enough where they pool into liquids. But these compounds, the base structure is carbon and hydrogen, which is the basis of fats, carbohydrates, and other molecules that we need to survive. So mm-hmm. maybe there is something there. Makes sense. And finally, there's Europa. It's a Jupiter moon that has possibly more water.
0: Wait, are they all? No, the other two were Saturn moons, huh? Yeah. Man, we have some moons, some moon people. Yep. There's cheese on the moons. No. Sustain life. <laughs> I learned that from another movie.
1: Mm, incorrect. But, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so it is a moon uh, around Jupiter and has possibly more water on it than Earth. This. Water is located 10 miles below ice. 10? 10 miles.
0: Miles. Yeah. Below ice.
1: Yeah, and I know that there were... How
0: do we even know that that exists? I mean, really.
1: Using instruments I don't even understand.
0: Mm, That's true, yeah, and this stuff's way beyond my intelligence. We've had
1: satellites pass through, and they can... I don't know what they're using.
0: 10 miles down?
1: Yeah. Interesting. Well, they they did think about creating a probe that could drill 10 miles down into the water to try to see what's there but that's all i have for astro microbiology
0: awesome i don't think i have anything either i think this was a really fun episode i'm really excited to jump into astro microbiology and coming up, we're going to do some really fun things. I don't know if you noticed, but I had like 16,000 different pop culture references in this episode. And there's a reason for that. I mean, besides the point that my brain is talking, always thinking about the different media types and how microbes are part of it. So the next time that we will be joined with you, we will be talking about science fiction and the microbe moments in literature and in movies. We'll talk a little about reality, a little bit not so reality. It's going to be a super awesome, fun episode.
1: We may actually have an episode interviewing a astrobiologist.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, We're gonna do some interviews. We're gonna do the sci it's a sci fi episode. We're gonna do a debom. Um all of our classic things on astro microbiology.
1: So if you have any suggestions of what we should cover space, microbiology, astro microbiology all under that umbrella, you can send us an email at microbials at gmail dot com.
0: And also send us your micro moments to M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S at
1: gmail.com. Or if you'd like, we are on Twitter and you can find us and send us a message there. And that's at Microbigals.
0: Same thing on Instagram. We are super responsive to all of them. We want to hear what your micro moment is. We want to hear how what other science fiction things you can relate to. microbes. So until next time, feed your microbes, feed your gut. Make your micros. Love you lots.
1: Bye. Bye.